Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. An international meeting on trade in endangered species falls short on protection of marine wildlife. It was actually a very sad two weeks for conservation. What didn't happen is increased protection for Atlantic bluefin tuna and six species of sharks who desperately need that protection. A report from the CITES conference. Also pushback in California against that state's pioneering efforts to address climate change. Opponents bankrolled by oil companies try to roll back the law. I think that the California people are outraged about the fact that the Texas oil companies are coming to California and try to change laws and policies in California. I mean, it's outrageous. And a tribute to conservationist Stuart Udall. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. A missed opportunity to protect some of the sea's most threatened animals. The 15th meeting of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, just wrapped up in Doha, Qatar. The UN-organized body sets rules for the global sales of products made from rare animals. The agenda included several marine species, Atlantic bluefin tuna, some sharks and corals, that scientists warn are in deep trouble. Susan Lieberman monitored the CITES meeting for the Pew Environment Group, where she directs international policy, and she joins us now from Doha. Ms. Lieberman, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So what happened, or I guess did not happen, with these marine animals? It was actually a very sad day or a sad two weeks for conservation here at Doha at the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. What didn't happen is increased protection for Atlantic bluefin tuna and six species of sharks who desperately need that protection. What does the science tell us about the status of uh, the bluefin and, and these sharks? Well, that's what's really interesting and particularly disappointing because the science was strong, and in fact, there was no debate on the science. The Atlantic bluefin tuna has declined more than 85%. That means there's less than 15% less due to excessive fishing, mainly due to the demand for sushi and sashimi, as well as due to overfishing and rampant illegal fishing as well. The science was clear. Monaco had submitted proposal, the United States, the European Union, Norway, and many other countries going into the meeting had supported it due to very intensive negative lobbying led by Japan. It was defeated. In addition, there were the proposals for the sharks, all of which uh, were not for a trade ban, but they were proposals to regulate and manage the trade just to make sure it's sustainable, just to have some level of control. The science was also sound there. The hammerhead shark, for example, is an endangered species, and it's been reduced in some areas more than 90%. Yet, at the end of the day, the majority supported it, but not the two-thirds required to get the protection needed for that shark. So what does this mean now for uh, the Atlantic bluefin and these species of sharks? Well, for the sharks, it means that after the CITES meeting, there is the same level of international protection there was before the meeting, and that's zero. 
What that means is on the high seas, there is no control about the numbers taken of hammerhead sharks, for example, or oceanic white tips. We know up to 73 million sharks of many species are killed every year for the fin trade. And right now, there's absolutely no international regulation or control of that trade. And for the bluefin, where, as I understand it, the situation is quite dire, is there any other regulatory body that might act here? Yes, the Atlantic bluefin tuna is managed by the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna. That's more than 40 countries. It's a treaty that gets together every year to manage this fish. They have been a dismal failure at managing this fish, and that's not a quote from me. That's their own internal review. And the members of CITES, the Convention on Trade and Endangered Species, basically decided to give the fish back to that commission, that International Commission for Atlantic Tunas, and say, it's your fish and you have the responsibility to manage it. So the, the, the more valuable the species, the harder it is to get a body like this to act, but also the, the greater the demand for the animal. Is there any way out for the bluefin tuna, or, or is it going to be fished right into extinction? Well, I certainly hope, and we certainly hope, that the bluefin tuna will not be fished into extinction. The bluefin tuna crashed in Brazil in the 1950s, and that's why this International Commission for Conservation of Atlantic Tuna's ICAT was invented. They made promises here to finally listen to science for the first time instead of always assigning quotas higher than the scientists recommended. And the United States delegate here said if ICAT doesn't do what it promised, then we will be back at the next CITES meeting. So at least the Atlantic bluefin tuna has ICAT to hope for. The sharks have nothing to hope for, though the sharks are extremely valuable uh, economically. They're also valuable ecologically in the ocean, and that's why we're going to work with governments who do support conservation to turn the tide here and hopefully at the next CITES meeting provide the protection necessary. So what does this tell us about the usefulness of the CITES process? I mean, I understand in the past they've taken important action to limit trade in uh, ivory and rhino horn and things like that, but but what about this? Well, it is very disappointing, and I don't want to give the impression that there are no marine species listed in CITES. All the hard coral are listed, the queen conch, people may be familiar with that species, all the seahorses, the sturgeon that provide caviar are regulated by CITES. But for highly commercial marine species, such as the sharks, such as the tuna, such as the red and pink coral, this is a setback for their conservation. But I believe firmly that CITES is the only international mechanism out there that can regulate trade in these species. And trade is the number one threat to these species. If you look at the sharks, it's not climate change. It's trade. It's trade demand. It's demand for their fins on the uncontrolled international market. So I don't want to say CITES is a failure. This conference did not succeed in providing the protections necessary to those species. But I firmly believe that there's a chance in the future. Susan Lieberman with the Pew Environment Group. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Stuart Udall, former congressman, interior secretary, and towering figure of conservation, died this month. He was 90 years old. As Secretary of the Interior for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, Stuart Udall was instrumental in passing fundamental environmental laws in the 1960s. 
He reflected on that period in a 2006 interview with Living on Earth. Protecting endangered species, cleaning up the nation's rivers, clean air, clean water, you know. And it was a wonderful time, kind of a golden age of the environmental movement. He worked with his brother, Arizona Congressman Morris Udall, to create national parks like Redwood in California and Canyonlands in Utah, names now synonymous with America's natural heritage. And Stuart Udall was the driving force behind the creation of the 1964 Wilderness Act. It was just the right time uh, for a new big idea like this. You know, no other country in the world had a wilderness policy, and uh, it... uh, it just struck a chord, and it was, it was very popular in the 1960s. Now, we had a fight, and it took four years to get it done, but it turned out there was overwhelming support in this country. And all of us, I was startled even at the margin by which it passed the Senate, which I think was 78 to 12. That shows you it was bipartisan, and it was across the country. We had tremendous support for it, and and this was really an expression of the desires of citizens. The country's wilderness system now protects some 107 million acres. Later, Stuart Udall fought to win compensation for Native Americans poisoned by uranium mining and nuclear weapons tests. He also wrote about Western history, energy problems, and landscape conservation. And Mr. Udall tapped into great voices from American literature to expand America's environmental consciousness. He invited writers and poets like Wallace Stegner and Robert Frost to Washington. Here's a guy who could uh, talk to uh, Robert Frost in the morning and Lyndon Johnson in the afternoon and have both their ears. That's Mark Troutwine. He got to know the Udalls during his 13 years of work as legislative assistant to Congressman Morris Udall. So over an arc of 30 years, Stewart and Mo Udall were the indispensable men of the conservation movement in America because Stewart got it. He, He got that we could not go on consuming ourselves and that our natural heritage was something to be nurtured. What do you think it was about uh, the Udalls that made them do that, that drove them? They were men who believed in public service, they believed in the greater good, and they were quintessentially men of the West, but a, a kind of a, a modern Western consciousness that looked at the landscape that had been handed down and saw that a great deal of what was valuable about it and so important about it was being lost. And they learned lessons from what they saw around them, and they sought to apply them to their politics and to their life's work. The Udall brothers also built something else, a family political dynasty. Each brother had sons who are now U.S. senators. Moe's son, Mark, is a Colorado senator. Stewart's son, Tom, is a senator from New Mexico. My father instilled in me the idea, if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. It's very important what my father and Mo did. It's a very um, uh, significant legacy, and I appreciate it, and I think the American people appreciate it, and I think they would like us to expand on that. But in our 2006 interview, Stuart Udall wasn't so sure that his son and nephew or any political leaders could do ambitious conservation today. The political environment, he thought, made environmental gains on the scale of the Wilderness Act unlikely. I believe if you proposed 
wellness bill today, it would not go through Congress. The divisions are so sharp, and the ideologies are so different that I I doubt that uh, it would get to first base. It has become an ideology that more conservation is not good for the country. It makes me sad. I'm a saddened person compared with what I was in the 1960s. But maybe it'll turn. There are cycles in history. Maybe it'll turn again in the direction it was. The map of this country bears witness to Stuart Udall's impact in the national parks, scenic rivers, and wildlife refuges he helped create. One place in particular stands out. The easternmost point of the U.S. territories, the tip of St. Croix and the U.S. Virgin Islands, is named Point Udall in Stuart Udall's honor. A massive stone sundial there greets the first rays of the rising sun to fall on U.S. land. A fitting tribute to a man whose legacy casts a long shadow over us all. Coming up, exploring a plan B for dealing with climate change, geoengineering. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Time now to hear from you. Our interview on possible warning labels on cell phones had some listeners calling us onto the carpet. Michael Langsfield of Southborough in the United Kingdom writes, You allowed Dr. Carpenter to quote anonymous studies without question, never asking about the size and methodology. What's more, your host failed to mention the many studies that fail to substantiate any associations between cell phone use and disease. Mike Simmons of Aspen, Colorado, agrees. Most of what David Carpenter says is directly contradicted by information on the National Cancer Institute's website, writes Mr. Simmons. The NCI is careful to cite evidence on both sides of this supposed issue. The great preponderance of the evidence finds no link. We received some kudos on our recent segment on director Frank Capra's early film on climate change. But biologist Andrew Mack thinks we missed the point by saying Frank Capra's 1958 film, The Unchained Goddess, was prescient. He writes, Capra was only ahead of our current awareness because there was so much denial and avoidance for decades. Rather than celebrate Capra as a visionary, we should see this as a lesson about the cost of willfully ignoring the warnings of science and common sense. Larry Essman of Seattle weighed in on our bamboo bike story. He said the segment was fun, but asked how was it possible for the bikes to weigh just four to six pounds? And yes, we goofed. The bamboo bike frame weighs four to six pounds, but the entire bike, wheels and other components, bells and whistles included, averages 17 to 22 pounds. Now, if you feel bamboozled or just have pedestrian comments about our program, let us know. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988.
Now that Congress has passed a health care bill, there's speculation about what might be done for the health of the climate. Last year, the House of Representatives voted to cap greenhouse gases, but attempts to pull together the 60 votes needed in the Senate appear to be faltering. Conservative Democrats are wary, and the few Republican senators who want action on climate change do not like the bill that passed the House. Maine Republican Susan Collins made that quite clear. If the House-passed cap-and-trade bill were to come to the Senate floor, I do not believe it would get even 50 votes, much less 60. I am confident that the cap-and-trade bill that the House passed is dead. Massachusetts Democrat John Kerry and South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham are working on a compromise. It would mix a carbon cap on the electricity sector with support for coal, nuclear power, and more offshore drilling. Matt Nemerski with the environmental group Oceana says that's provoking a backlash. There's a, uh, a sense of frustration on the uh, progressive side that perhaps their votes are being taken for granted. What we are starting to see is that the debate has shifted from not how are we going to cap carbon pollution. It has simply come down to what do we need to give industry in order to pass a bill. While Congress continues its debate, several states have already taken action. California led the way four years ago with a law limiting greenhouse gas emissions. It's just now being put into place. However, with unemployment in California topping 12 percent, opponents say capping carbon could cost more jobs. They've launched an effort to block the law. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports that could send shockwaves beyond the Golden State. For nearly a decade, thousands of engineers, scientists, and policymakers have been molding California into a model low-carbon economy. In recent years, there's been no more vocal champion of that effort than Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. In California, we are proceeding on renewable energy requirements and a cap-and-trade system for greenhouse gases and limiting greenhouse gas emissions from cars. Nearly 60% of all venture capital in America flows to California. And this is creating the critical mass of money and intellect to develop new green technologies. This is California as environmental leader. Indeed, federal law gives other states the right to adopt stricter air rules once they're created here. But there's another California, communities living with massive unemployment, low-paying jobs, and foreclosure, communities where venture capital seems remote. Conservatives and anti-tax groups are organizing in these hard-hit areas, trying to get a measure on the ballot to roll back California's climate change law. This is suicide. This is economic suicide that they're forcing on us. There's never been a, a, a groundswell of support from the people saying, yeah, we want to sacrifice a million jobs for a theoretical reduction in carbon dioxide emission when nobody else on the planet is doing this. No, but nobody's for that. That's the John and Ken radio show broadcast across Southern California. The one million lost jobs figure they cite comes from the high-end estimate of a Cal State Sacramento business school study, a study sharply criticized by state economists. On this day, the radio team exhorted listeners for five hours to scrap California's climate change law, which they refer to by a provocative and loaded name. Sign the petitions. It's the California Jobs Initiative to stop the Global Warming Final Solutions Act. Governor Schwarzenegger has leaned heavily on businesses not to fund a measure that could tarnish his environmental legacy. 
So the effort has collected most of its money outside the state, about a million dollars so far, mostly from oil companies, including Valero, which owns two refineries here. Backers believe that as carbon regulations continue to go into effect, more residents will resent the intrusion and sign on. And we told you about the California Air Resources Board and some of the crazy ideas they've been working over the past couple of years. Coming up with the idea of putting tint in your windows and checking your tire inflation. Regulating the color of the outside oh, the color, of your yeah. car. The, because you might be able to save two tenths of a degree on and these the are the, And these are the, only, these are the ideas that went public. Oh, that's what I want to get. I want to get the list of the, yeah, the master list that they decided to pass on. If the measure gets on the ballot, it could also increase conservative turnout for the gubernatorial election in November. Jerry Brown is the Democrat in the race. He'd continue climate change efforts. eBay billionaire Meg Whitman is a lead Republican candidate. Democrats are already painting her as a threat. Meg Whitman, who wants to be governor of California, is standing with Sarah Palin and a group of extreme right-wingers in attacking solutions to the climate crisis. But it's not clear how strongly Whitman would oppose California's climate law, known as AB 32. She has said she would delay it. So as governor, I actually would place a moratorium on AB 32 by executive order until we fully understand the law's impact on our economy. I love California's environment, but I reject radical environmental policies that do little for the environment and devastate California's economic future. But Whitman also says she admires environmentalist Van Jones. She says she met him on an Arctic climate change cruise. And her family foundation has donated $300,000 to the Environmental Defense Fund. One national consultant on climate policy, Terry Tamanen, says the climate change pushback in California hasn't really made the national radar yet, but staffers in Washington are watching. I think it's instructive when you see California, which has been the leader on climate policy in the United States, if you think that AB 32 might falter or even have serious backlash, that you then say, well, maybe as we approach climate change, we should do it in a different way. The next goal for the ballot initiative is to turn in enough signatures by mid-April. Meanwhile, climate change efforts set in motion here continue to roll across the country. On April 1st, EPA is set to approve national regulations on greenhouse gas emissions from cars based on a 2002 law in California. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Political inaction on climate change has some scientists thinking about a radical Plan B. It's called geoengineering altering the environment in order to manipulate the climate. It sounds like the stuff of science fiction, and the idea of making it reality raises a host of ethical issues. Geoengineering proponents recently gathered at the Asilomar Conference Center in California to talk about how and whether we should attempt to control the climate. Journalist and author Jeff Goodell was there. His forthcoming book about geoengineering is called How to Cool the Planet. Jeff Goodell, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So what's going on with this conference, and why is it taking place now, do you think? Well, when it comes down to it, it's not the technical problems that are the real complexity here. It is the ethical and political and social and cultural 
questions that are the most profound. And there hasn't really been a forum yet to to deal with that. And I think it's happening now because we're at a turning point in how we think about global warming. We've seen 30 years of talk about this, and there's been a lot of hope that we would sort of get enough information about this and understand the science well enough, and we would then get our political act together and cut emissions and deal with this in the way that it obviously needs to be dealt with. But that isn't happening. And this conference is part of a larger sort of opening of rethinking the problem of how we're going to deal with climate change. And what are we talking about when we talk about geoengineering exactly? Well, I started out the book, and I heard about this idea of geoengineering a couple of years ago, and I thought it was just a completely crazy idea. Then there's a number of, of course, crackpots in this who want to, you know, dump special case cereal into the ocean in order to change the reflectivity of the ocean or set off nuclear bombs on the moon in order to put moon dust into space to reflect sunlight. But but there's a real serious core of scientists uh, who are thinking about this. And the much more interesting part of this is methods of deflecting sunlight from the surface of the Earth, basically putting particles into the high stratosphere that would act like tiny mirrors and and reflect away sunlight or brightening clouds to reflect more sunlight off the top of clouds. And the really interesting thing is that, first of all, this is technically not that difficult to do. And you only have to deflect, say, you know, one to two percent of the sunlight away from the Earth to offset, you know, a kind of doubling of CO2 emissions. But you have to have this continual injection of this stuff up there. And if you don't, the uh, shade will go away and you will have a very rapid warming. One of the things I really like uh, about your book is uh, you're not just talking about the ideas here, but about the people who are coming up with these ideas. And they're, they're fascinating. Who are these guys? And they are mostly guys who want to control the climate. What's driving them? Well, two people to me sort of embody the, the kind of people who are behind this. And one is a man named Lowell Wood, uh, who was a protege of Edward Teller, who was you know, the godfather of the hydrogen bomb and an infamous figure in Cold War science. You know, he spent a lot of time building the Star Wars missile defense system. He was instrumental in that. And to him, this is a kind of playing around with these big ideas that he loves to do. Brilliant physicist. And I I don't think he's concerned about the environment. I don't think he's concerned even about global warming so much. I think he's just a guy who likes to be influential. And to me, he's a, a kind of scarier side of this because he connects with this whole Cold War establishment. But another kind of person is someone like David Keith, who is a uh, runs an energy and environment program at the uh, University of Calgary. And David is one of the sort of most serious-minded, most sort of moral human beings that I have ever met. And he's a physicist, and he spent a lot of time in the Arctic camping and and is deeply connected to the sort of um, environment into the natural world. And for him, geoengineering is, is an environmental tool. Basically, he argues that if we want to save an ecosystem like the Arctic, the only real chance to do that is going to be by shielding some sunlight and cooling it off so that the ice doesn't melt so quickly. Other than that, the way things are going, the Arctic is a goner. And so he sees this as a risky, dangerous, but perhaps useful tool in that quest to kind of save the planet. Another person who features prominently in your book uh, is Bill Gates. What's his interest in all this? Bill Gates has funded some of David Keith's research and some other scientists' research into this. I think that Bill is interested in this for the same reasons that a lot of people are, and that he sees that we're, we're not doing anywhere near enough to kind of confront this challenge. And so, like many people, he started to think about what else we might do. And 
you know, it's hard to deny that there's a kind of, you know, techno strain going through this whole idea of geoengineering. Uh, it's very popular among people like Gates. It's very popular in Silicon Valley, places like that. It's a kind of, even a kind of geeky idea because it sees the climate as a system that can be hacked and manipulated. And I think on some level, that's what Gates's interest is. He sees the climate system as a as not so different than an operating system for a computer that ultimately we can figure out how to manipulate. You also spend some time in your book pointing out uh, the way things could go wrong with this and your fears. What are your fears about geoengineering? Oh, it's a very long list. I mean, we're sort of messing with the gears and levers of the climate. And, you know, we can't make a perfect climate for everybody. You know, who gets the sort of better climate? Who decides? I guess my biggest fear is that we could really, someone could start doing this and doing it badly. You know, if we get into a situation or any nation gets into a situation where climate change is causing extreme droughts or famines driven by droughts that are linked to climate change, and there's real calls to do something about this, a nation, uh, whether it's ours or China or India or anyone else, could just say they're going to do this for political reasons. You know, look, we're doing something. We're trying to fix this. And, you know, for example, in China, they're doing a lot of weather modification, cloud seeding and things like that, trying to make it rain, even though the science on that is very sketchy. For the 60th anniversary of the party uh, last year, they sent a bunch of planes up and tried to make the sky blue because they wanted blue sky for the day of the celebration. And so the political symbolism of this is sort of really dangerous, and it could be used simply as a political tool. This is such a hot topic, and one of the things I've encountered is uh, just bringing it up can can be controversial because uh, some people look at this whole topic of geoengineering and say, well, people are going to think this is a, a quick and easy fix, and therefore you don't have to worry about the real solutions to global warming. Is that still a factor here? That's a huge factor, and I think that's one of the things that everyone who thinks seriously about this is really afraid of because – the only way that this sort of makes sense at all is to keep in our kind of back pocket as a sort of emergency response plan to think that we can fix this complicated problem with this sort of simple fix by throwing little particles in the stratosphere is, you know, very delusional and very, very kind of dangerous thinking. And there's really the motivation for a lot of scientists who are thinking about that because they really want to show that, hey, this is possible, but you know what? There's a lot of other consequences to this. We might really change the weather patterns on the planet by doing this. I mean, one of the fears that a lot of scientists has is that the, you know, the fossil fuel industry will get a hold of this, essentially, and begin in subtle ways, arguing that this is a way of buying time and why we don't really need to push so hard on cutting emissions right now. One of the things I like about the discussion about geoengineering is that it makes explicit this idea that we are in control. Right now, we are in control. We are pushing the planet towards a completely different kind of climate. But we're in denial about it. We want to pretend that we're not responsible for what's going to happen to the future of the planet. But in fact, we are responsible. So we have uh, folks gathering at these conferences to uh, talk about the ethics of geoengineering. We have Congress looking into putting money into research. We have billionaires like Bill Gates looking into geoengineering. What would be, what would be a good outcome, you think, of all of that focus and interest? 
Well, I think the best outcome of all of this focus and interest would be to galvanize people to say, hey, if we don't do something seriously about cutting emissions, if we don't, you know, agree to some kind of global Copenhagen-like agreement, we are going to end up geoengineering the planet. And that's a scary scenario because we might really screw it up. I think the second best outcome is that we take this idea seriously and make this a legitimate piece of the toolbox of how we might think about dealing with global warming. We might not ever need to do it. We might not ever want to do it. But I think that we need to know more about it so that we can decide as a culture whether to take this seriously or not and, and what the risks really are of going down this road. Jeff Goodell's new book is How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering and the Audacious Quest to Fix Earth's Climate. Thanks very much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, celebrity chef Jamie Oliver's food revolution hits close to home. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. April 3rd marks 150 years since the first ride of the Pony Express, and the anniversary carries a timely lesson for us today. The Pony Express was the first overland route to transport mail from the East Coast to California. Trains carried mail to St. Joseph, Missouri, where riders, some as young as 13, carried it by horseback to Sacramento, California. Cindy Daffron, director of the Pony Express Museum in St. Joseph, says it was one tough mail route. If you've been around a horse, you know, at a full gallop, they're about a 20-mile-an-hour animal, and we know they can't keep that up for, you know, any period of time. So we say more of an average is 10 to 12 miles per hour. Now, every 7 to 15, there would have been what we call a relay station, would have been some kind of a building and a spare horse there, and that guy would have been responsible to take care of the horse, wait for the rider to come in, get him exchanged. Two minutes is all they designed for those guys to get off of one horse and head out. As famous as the Pony Express is, it went belly up after only a year and a half. Mail by pony could not compete with the telegraph. Today's postal service also faces stiff competition from electronic communication. The USPS could be hundreds of billions of dollars in debt in the coming decade. So it's looking to save money by cutting Saturday delivery and using less fuel. Everett, Massachusetts letter carrier Wayne Post delivers with alternative fuel. I drive a Dodge van, but it's a flex fuel vehicle. It uses regular gasoline and it uses the flex fuel. It's an eco-friendly type of fuel that they have in the vehicle, so the newer ones. Let's go fill up. The Postal Service is doing more than trimming its budget this way. It's also reducing its carbon footprint. It's Sam Polcrano's job to keep track of such things. He's vice president of sustainability for the USPS. We already have one of the largest alternative fleets uh, in the world, about 44,000 vehicles. Uh, We have vehicles out there running on CNG, propane, electric vehicles, as well as uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And just very, very recently, uh, we just awarded a contract to five different companies 
to take that current vehicle, that the ubiquitous postal vehicle that you see on the street every day, and to change them into being all-electric vehicles. And we're in the process of developing, and we'll be testing them this summer. And uh, how would eliminating Saturday delivery affect the Postal Service's uh, carbon footprint? Well, what reducing one day of street delivery will reduce our delivery vehicle use, some transport fuel use, and also some facility energy use. In terms of greenhouse gases, reducing that would be equivalent to about 315 to 500,000 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions a year. That would be equal to about 60 to 95,000 gasoline-powered passenger cars. To be honest, uh, when I got to thinking about the Postal Service and greenhouse gas emissions, I thought, you know, here's an area where maybe we could do away with the Postal Service and save us a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Is that necessarily so? Not really. Our direct emissions total about 5.3 million tons, roughly equivalent to 1 million gasoline cars driving an average of 12,000 miles on the road each year. But to put that in perspective for you, that's only one-twentieth of one percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions in America, and we are an anchor of the U.S. economy. We move billions of dollars in uh, bill payments and remittance payments between businesses and industry each and every day. And it shouldn't be lost on folks that we deliver 40 percent of the world's mail in the United States. So what's the plan for cutting the, uh, the energy use and the greenhouse gas emissions if you're still planning to maintain that level of business? Well, we have uh, several goals. Uh, first is our goal is to reduce our electrical energy use 30% by 2015. And to date, we're down about 21% towards that goal. We have another goal of reducing our fuel use 20% by 2015. Uh, And just this year alone, we took out about a million and a half gallons last year in fuel use, and we're down about 2.3 million uh, year to date this year. In addition, our facilities team, they're going out to our largest energy users, installing more high efficiency lighting, putting in uh, programmable thermostats, more efficient heating systems and ventilation systems, etc. You know, we kicked this off by uh, talking about the big anniversary for the Pony Express. Any any ponies still in use? Uh, Yes, there are. We still deliver mail as well as food and medical supplies to those who live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Uh, We do that every week, and obviously that's one of our uh, more environmentally friendly methods of uh, delivering mail as well as other very essential life-supporting supplies to the communities down there that need them. It's a uh, biofueled-powered system of transportation you have there. Yes, and it's very easy to recycle. (laughs) Sam Polcrano is Vice President of Sustainability for the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks for your time. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Now, if Congress approves the measure, Saturday mail delivery could be history next year. British celebrity chef Jamie Oliver is bringing his brand of food edutainment to America, specifically to America's unhealthiest city. Oliver took on school nutrition programs in England and wants to do the same in the U.S. The title of his new TV series sums it up, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. Jamie Oliver, welcome to Living on Earth. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Now tell me about Huntington, West Virginia. 
the tri-state area of West Virginia was the area that seemed to have the biggest problem with obesity, diabetes, various strokes, heart disease. For that, obviously, we did our research and and we looked at the CDC report, which is a government report on disease. And um, so we focused in on that area. Then we went to the biggest metropolitan area, which was Huntington. You know, lots of people are kind of almost fatigued by the stats and the bad news. But, you know, from my experience over the last seven years, you know, telling real people's stories, getting in their homes, working with them, you know, um, trying to give them simple bits of good information that can help them change their lives and and give them choice is what it's all about. But we didn't just want to do it with one family. It was the whole town. You want to know another fun fact about Huntington? Go for it. It's, It's my hometown. Is it really? It's where I grew up, right there in that corner of West Virginia. It's a beautiful place. It's a really lovely place. And uh, quite interesting in the sense that Huntington and West Virginia has the biggest collection of small farms in the whole of the United States. And yet this area has got these problems. You know, I I saw some of the the clips of your program. And one Mm -hmm. of the uh, defining characteristics of of Huntington, my my hometown, is that it values tradition, which is good. But it also means it is it's highly resistant to change. And I understand Mm. you 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 got. Well, it's not just Huntington. I think, you know, change is the biggest uncomfortable thing for all of us and and i think you know huntington was fully aware of the cdc report you know and and they they kind of had a magnifying glass poked on them uh, for a number of years the reality is is huntington's health statistics you know last year when we did the report you know were three percent away from the national average so basically huntington's story is america's story your trip into the the school there it was pretty amazing there's this uh, scene and i want to hear just a bit of it where you you hold up some vegetables to see if the kids can identify them and uh, well, well let's let's hear just a bit of that who knows what this is potatoes potato so you think these are potatoes not potatoes though oh. i don't know do you know what this is no who knows what tomato ketchup is yeah, that's what it's made out of. Oh, tomato ketchup? I know that. So they don't know tomatoes when you hold up tomatoes. That's an important scene for me. I've done that in several countries. I've done that scene in England, and it's exactly the same. You know, England's the most unhealthy country in Europe. America, you know, you're doing pretty well on the world. You know, we spend our lives as parents saying, oh, mind that street, you know, be careful how you go down there. And, but, you know, you don't want to get mugged or crime or gun crime. You know, all of the deaths from, from homicide don't even compare in quantity to the amount of deaths of diabetes and obesity and, and, and these things. Your program is uh, Food Revolution. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you think in the end that you really, that you really changed anything there? Really, it's now for that community and the groups of people that I work with to sort of become local ambassadors of change and, and really carry on showing America that anyone can do it. What I think is going to be exciting is seeing what does happen in Huntington. You know, the community kitchen that we set up with free cooking lessons, that's got funding for the next year and a half. I've raised fundraised cash locally to sustainably roll out every single school in the area, probably the school that you went to as a kid, um, to go from the reheated junk to fresh foods. So when I go back home, will I see people eating differently in Huntington? 
Well, you know what? Over the next three years, I believe so, yeah. I mean, I think the food revolution isn't just about schools. It's not just about the home. It's about the supermarkets, what they're selling, how they're selling it, uh, how they're uh, trying to educate people in how they can do stuff they've never tried before. But also the restaurants and the fast food industry. You know, there is, you know, certainly back home, there's been a massive swell of what you would perceive as the bad guys actually doing some really radical good work, you know, where they buy stuff from, what's in the food. So I think, you know, give me three or four years, you might start seeing some really clear things happening. But uh, I think Huntington's got a lot to be proud of. Jamie Oliver, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. The national dish of Korea is a spicy pickled salad called kimchi. It's known for its peppery flavor and distinct pungent aroma. It's an acquired taste for some and obsession for others who credit kimchi with improving health and the environment. Living on Earth's Ike Sriskanjaraja got a taste at Boston's first kimchi cook-off. I like my kimchi to be uh, very spicy, very garlicky. I have this spicy throat. (coughs) But, you know, it requires some fortitude. It's not for the faint of palate, but as this bustling hall in Theodore Parker Church in Roxbury demonstrates, foodies of all sorts go crazy for kimchi. My name is Alex Lewin. I'm one of the co-organizers of the Kimchi Festival, and I'm one of the judges. If you open one jar of kimchi in a room, the whole room smells like kimchi. And if you open, you probably have 25 jars of kimchi in here. Yeah, it's sort of sensory pandemonium. The base of most kimchi concoctions contains pickled cabbage and chili pepper paste with a mixture of vegetables, scallions, radish, ginger, and garlic. Non-traditional entries in the kimchi off experiment with cranberries, honey, and bits of chocolate. Armed with the clipboard and palate-cleansing barley tea, Lewin weaves through the crowd, tasting the two dozen contest entries. You know, and we have in our heads a list of qualities of good kimchi, the right amount of saltiness. You know, there's a wider range for sourness. You can have a younger kimchi it's not as sour, a more fermented one that's more sour. You want it to be crunchy. You don't really want it to be too soggy. The smell, it's a smell of life. Cora Roloffs, who conceived the festival, sports a traditional Korean coat. I'm wearing what's called a hambro. It has actually kimchi pots on the bottom of it, decorative kimchi pots. The small blonde lady, festooned in fermentation vessels, is not out of place among the cult-like devotees here today. Kimchi whips up such fervor, not only for its flavors, but, as Roloff puts it, for... The wonderful delights of fermented food and their health and life-giving properties, so... Kimchi has been championed as one of the world's healthiest foods. Researchers have suggested it boosts immunity to the SARS virus, and a nutritionist working on erectile dysfunction recommends it over Viagra. You don't have to look far to witness kimchi's nutritional power. Martial artist Ing Wang Zhang pops a hunk of orange cabbage into his mouth, flexes for the audience, and prepares to leap over a line of girls to break a wooden board. The girl's covering the head! Do you think the kimchi made you stronger? Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I have uh, eaten uh, maybe over 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just healthy. Local farmer and kimchi contestant Greg Maslow says preserving food is key to sustainable living. Anytime you can get people thinking about making their own food and preserving food, um, it has a lot of environmental implications. For example, with kimchi or sauerkraut, it's a way to uh, extend the, the season of eating local and you'd be able to ferment food and keep it all the way through until the next year at some point. 
The art of fermentation is one of the oldest, easiest ways to preserve food. For over 3,000 years, Koreans have been chopping up spices and vegetables and burying them in stone clay pots. No electricity or preservatives, just a jar and some patience. But while anyone can make a kimchi, the perfect kimchi is a thing worth celebrating. Best kimchi in the show for the first annual Greater Boston Kimchi Festival goes to Patricia Yu for her radish kimchi. What do you think is the secret to the winning kimchi? I used whole radishes. I'm not sure what the secret to the whole kimchi was. <laughs> I really don't know. The mystery may continue to elude us, but there's no shortage of aficionados trying to unlock the secret to kimchi. And for its health and ecological benefits, many are singing its praises. Kimchi, how I love how I love For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sriskandaraja. On the next Living on Earth, we travel with reporter Alex Chadwick to Central Africa's Congo Basin for a look at efforts to save the carbon-rich forest. It's like nature's Disneyland. We recorded this near what had been a small cluster of Baaka people, pygmies. They've abandoned this site or been chased away, where in a forest space they had cleared for a shrine. We're staying quiet, recording. It's dawn. There are many ideas about what to do with all this forest. If I were the head of state in this country, I would have advocated strongly to continue to destroy the forest. A government official in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, we'd spoken to him about this forest several days earlier. Who are destroying the forest in Cameroon? Uh, uh, Europeans. The timber companies. Yeah, the timber companies. You see, um, you have to keep in mind one thing. You, American, the most richest country on earth, the most powerful country on earth, you used to have a lot of forests in your own uh, cities and country. Where is your forest? You destroy it. Now you come in, in Cameroon and you say, oh, guy, stop destroying the forest. Then why? Why don't you want us to destroy our own forest to do the same thing you did? Issa Kroma Bakari, Minister of Communication and Skilled at It. The cut it down rant, a caricature, he says. But what lies behind it, poverty, need, isolation, crippled lives, those are real, and especially in forest communities. Saving Africa's Great Forest, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. 
Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.